Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I am Tamron McDermott, and joined today by Tyson Lewis and Peter Highland, both from the University of North Texas. In this podcast episode, Tyson and Peter will be discussing their recently published book, Studious Drift, Movements and Protocols for a Post-Digital Education. As a member of the CAA Education Committee and current PhD student in art education, I'm really thrilled to be in conversation with Tyson and Peter today, and I want to welcome you both. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Peter Highland. I am director of the Onsted Institute for Education in the Visual Arts and Design uh, within the College of Visual Arts and Design at the University of North Texas. And I'm Dr. Tyson Lewis, and I'm a professor of art education in the College of Visual Arts and Design at the University of North Texas. And I teach courses in critical phenomenology, critical theory, educational philosophy, aesthetics, and philosophy for children. Great. Well, thank you both again for being here. And I thought we could start the conversation uh, about your book by um, having you tell us a little bit about how the book idea began and also what led you to working together on this project. All right. Uh, I think I'll start start off. And uh, I love this question because it really highlights the fact that the book came out of many years of practice, practices of experimentation with what education could mean and what it might look like. So I have to take us back quite a few years to to outline the origins of this project. And basically, I started to think about alternative ways of doing, thinking, and writing about education probably 12 years ago. And I remember I co-hosted a conference at Teachers College at Columbia University around that time on the fate of the academic journal. And at this conference, we asked a bunch of graduate students who were there if they wanted to form a new educational journal focused on experimental modes of writing and thinking about education. And surprisingly, the graduate students said they didn't want another journal. Instead, what they really wanted were alternative practices and ways of making these practices public that would fall outside of the academic journal, yet would nevertheless be thought of as having some kind of academic value or some kind of academic worth. And so a small group of us decided to launch an experiment out of that conference. And we agreed to read this book, Avital Ronell's The Test Drive, which actually makes a little guest appearance in the book that Peter and I have written. And the idea was that we would independently come up with these short sets of experimental rules based on our reading of the book. So the these rules would come out of our reading of the book, and we called them protocols. And uh, we all agreed then to vote on which protocol we, we thought was most intriguing, and then we would enact the protocol and share the results via email. And this was before, I think, even Google Docs existed, or it was at this sort of beginning of Google Docs. So we just sort of did the whole thing via email. And we hoped, I, I mean, I think our hope was that this protocol would would somehow create a new dynamic or open up a new space for thinking about Ronell's book in unexpected ways that would both suspend academic conventions of reading, writing, 
conferencing, publishing, but also could still be considered quote unquote academic. They'd, they'd still be rigorous. And this is basically essentially where the idea of the protocol was born, which is a fulcrum in the book that Peter and I have written, Studious Drift, but it was sort of lacking in a major component. And that was, we didn't have a sense of how to make it, how to make these protocols public, how to share them, how to make them in common, how to open up the protocol for others to engage with it. And so one of my colleagues at that conference, Daniel Friedrich and I decided to, to start taking this idea of the protocol on the road, so to say, and we started performing these protocol experiments live at conferences. And the first time we did this was at the American, uh, what is it, AERA, the American Research, American Educational Research Association. Sorry, I've got so many acronyms floating around in my mind. And we all we did was we had a panel and we brought with us a bunch of copies of this very popular handbook on teaching by Doug Lamov. And we handed out this handbook to everybody in the audience. And we brought with us not only the handbook, but all this stuff, like all of this art making material, but also strange things like staples and glitter and string and nails and just a bunch of really weird hardware-ish type things. And we just told the people, look, here's this book. Um, hack into it, tinker with it, turn it into something else, make it inoperative. And it was really surprising and fascinating what people actually did. We had no idea what they would do. We didn't know if they'd take us seriously. And within literally seconds of getting these books, like people were on the floor. They'd moved all the furniture in the conference room around. They were in little groups. They were assembling things, building things. And it was just fascinating to watch it. And we thought, wow, this is a really interesting way of thinking about what a conference is beyond just, you know, passively sitting there listening to a presentation and, and sort of learning something from the presentation. This is at, this is like building something out of the conference itself is that the conference were a kind of material for a sort of artistic happening. And so when I got to UNT, then I began collaborating with Peter to try to develop this idea even further, maybe by hosting our own conference. And I, I guess this is where Peter comes into the narrative. So I'll just, I'll hand it over to him. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Tyson and I started talking in, I believe, the fall of 2015. I had recently arrived to be the inaugural director of the Onset Institute. And we really had no programming at that point. The mission of the Institute is to provide services and resources for K through 12 art and design education uh, populations. And so that's as interpreted as broadly as you can imagine that. And so uh, part of that is working with faculty uh, on projects and research initiatives and things of, of that nature. And so I was doing sort of a grand tour uh, around the college, just trying to get to know my colleagues. And Tyson and I started talking, and I think we really quickly found that we had a shared interest in uncommon approaches to education. You know, uh, we had affinities for similar sorts of ways of thinking and doing. And so, as Tyson said, he came to me with this idea of, you know, how might we 
create a symposium situation that is atypical, where it's not a sort of passive audience scenario where the audience is engaged in a different manner and the presenters are engaged in a different manner, in fact. And what would that look like? And so he described what he and uh, Daniel had been doing. And I was really intrigued and excited about it and sort of blindly said yes to, to this venture of, yeah, let's, let's get together, create a situation that brings together thinkers that are interested in, in these um, sort of off the wall kinds of approaches to things. And we very quickly were able to identify scholars and artists who wanted to participate, um, many of whom had already collaborated with Tyson or Tyson um, was aware of their scholarship just from uh, his readings in the field. And so we started approaching people and asking them if they wanted to, to be a part of this thing. And I think everybody said yes, but then there was some reluctance once we began to tell them, you know, okay, well, you have to design a protocol and here's what a protocol is, what we mean by it. And they said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> that seems a little uncertain. You know, they, I, I don't know exactly um, how to situate myself as a, a scholar or a professor and create these, um, ultimately what we're trying to create is a certain kind of awkward situation in which certain things get enacted. And so they were uncomfortable with that awkwardness. And I think Tyson, they had actually uh, communicated with you, if I remember uh, about this in part, just leading up to, you know, their construction of the protocols is how do I do this? I'm, I'm, I'm have some trepidation <laughs> in, in um, putting these things together. And so we wound up running that symposium and it was a great success. And a success in, in, in the way that everybody was really engaged. By the end of it, everybody felt that they had some sort of experience. But in our concluding session, you know, what came out was that, and, and this is, I think, an important thing to note is that it was difficult to describe what that experience was exactly. You know, we went through these series of protocols that were di very different, constructed by different groups of scholars. Some of them were designers. Some of them were philosophers of education. Some of them were artists. And we cycled the uh, attendees through all of these different experiences. And I think what we came up with at the end was a, a strong feeling that there was something more here, that, that, that there was something to continue, that this was in fact probably a beginning point rather than a culminating point that we needed to follow through on. And so we continued to think along these lines. And then, you know, ultimately we began to plan for a subsequent symposium, but we decided that we wanted to have that be digital. That decision was pre-pandemic. I think the impetus behind it was one, you know, it's expensive to get fly everybody to a certain place. We've already done that anyway. Why don't we try this out? Two, looking at the 
mechanisms of digital spaces, looking at the uh, materiality of digital spaces, if we want to use that word, you know, us being intrigued by those aspects and trying to really discover what the potential was there for the protocoling situations that we we want to construct and to and to put out there. And so I guess, Tyson, I'll, I'll kick it back to you. And maybe if you can talk about a little bit how the concept of Studio D, which was that second uh, symposium, came together. Yeah, sure. So, you know, basically what we were interested in was how ed tech companies and e-learning had taken over universities or was in the was was sort of in the process of taking over universities again this was sort of pre-pandemic but it was on the horizon and we wanted to look at the educational logic embedded within these various platforms such as canvas and blackboard but also the educational logic at work in simple everyday forms of social media such as facebook and various apps and so on and we wanted to sort of like create protocols that could hack into them or tinker with uh render inoperative the the sort of embedded educational logics and turn them into something else turn them into a different kind of educational space or educational situation and so we basically created a website called Studio D or Digital Studio to house these uh, various protocols. And then groups of scholars and students around the world that were involved in this dedicated about a week in uh, the spring of, what was it, 2020? Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, 2020 to enacting these. And then they would upload their results into the website. So basically, from these experiences, right, we, we had two various symposia that, that we had organized at this point, and we had developed this idea of protocoling, the, this idea of educational experimentation, this idea of rupturing embedded learning logics, all of this stuff. But one thing that we became sensitive to was what kind of space is being generated here? What kind of space are we carving out when we go and create situations and conferences or put on our own symposia, right? So what kind of educational space does a protocol produce? And how do these protocols transform what is educationally possible in traditional spaces like classrooms or conferences. And this is really where we began to theorize the idea of a studio. It's the studio as a kind of experimental educational space. And then that's ultimately what led to our book, Studious Drift. And I think, you know, our notion of space evolved over time because we, you know, are obviously began talking about physical spaces, but if we think about virtual environments, those are spaces as well, but they don't have physicality. You can think about uh, mental space, right? You can think about space as that which is in between things, right? So, you know, the space between two people in line or the space between two letters on a page. We can think about space as that which is beyond us, like outer space. So, you know, there were already all of these different meanings embedded within this, this notion of space. 
we were already hacking into what we thought these spaces were. And then the pandemic popped up um, as we were creating Studio D. And all of a sudden, sort of its import shifted a little bit because now it wasn't as if we were exploring the digital spaces because we just thought that that was a good idea. Now it was, well, this is really a necessity. We have to do it this way because this is the only way in which we can do it. We were just fortunate that we had already began to create a structure that would allow that to occur. And then in fact, as Studio D started to unfold, the different protocols and the people, largely students that were enacting them, we began to really see how the, the uh, pandemic sort of impacted some of their responses to things. Tyson, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the, um, the studious spaces, the study spaces uh, protocol, where we had students basically take photos of their study spaces and sort of what we discovered through that. Well, and I was going to jump in just to ask also if, if describing what some of these protocol experiences were or what they look like would be something you could do for us. And maybe this is a good that transition to describing this documentation of, of studio and workspaces, Tyson. That would be great because I think we're all eager to learn what this looks like in practice, what these protocols look like. So first off, let's take a step back. You know, what is a protocol exactly? Um, so first and foremost, the way that we conceptualize protocols is that they should suspend or render inoperative some kind of common sense set of assumptions about what education is. Uh, so the social norms surrounding education. And predominantly today, that means calling into question the dominance of what my friend and colleague Herod Bista calls learnification. Um, so learning in this sense is really the reduction of education to the calculation of inputs and outputs. So it's really assessment focused forms of education. So protocols should not replicate this logic, but rather destabilize it or somehow neutralize it. And so in other words, sort of neutralizing the assumed ends of learning and by doing so, open up situations where experimentation with the very meaning of education can emerge. So that's sort of the, the, the aim of protocols. And when we instruct people to write them, we give some sort of supplementary principles for protocol writing, one of which is that they should be fairly minimalistic. So you don't want to make them too complex, or alternatively, you want to make them so Baroque <laughs> um, that they become interesting. The third sort of principle would be sort of that they should be able to be enacted by the largest audience possible. So we want them to not be restricted to those who have access to overly specialized spaces or equipment. And then lastly, they should be, and this is the, I guess, the most challenging criteria, and that is that the protocol should be genuinely experimental. So it should be about balancing rules or formal constraints with a kind of open-ended procedure that is receptive to chance. So to give an example of one of these protocols, which Peter's already mentioned, 
uh, would be one that was, was written for Studio E by my colleague at UNT, James Thurman, and myself. And it was called Self Study Ease, which is a riff on, on selfies. And so we were thinking here of the selfie. And there's a kind, although we don't think about it this way, selfies have a kind of embedded educational logic working within them. And uh, so the point of the selfie is to show a romantic, entertaining, heightened, sensationalized version of yourself so that others can essentially learn learn to see you as a kind of perfected version of yourself. And so what we wanted to do was challenge this idea. And so we asked students to not take pictures of themselves doing extraordinary things or in beautiful locations or, you know, eating wonderful food, but rather to take pictures of the most banal, average, everyday study spaces that they occupy. And then sort of write about what that study space enables them to do. So really it was a it was to produce pictures of studies as reflections of one's potentiality for studying. And you can go online. I highly encourage listeners to go to Studio D and take a look at the images that students uploaded in some of their some of their reflective writing on the on on the experiment. And I think, you know, another way of thinking about the protocols are, you know, they're the provide the most basic means of trying to conjure up the studio. One way in which we think about the studio, Tyson and I, is not so much a place where things exist as a verb, as something that you do, a way of gathering up the world, understanding the world, positioning yourself within it, exploding things that are um, sort of concretized within the world and seeing what happens. And so, you know, all of this we saw really coming through quite well through the Studio D project in various ways. And the book sort of goes through some of those protocols, uh, extrapolates on um, some of the things that we're saying here. But, you know, I think that the protocols, one place that they come from is, and we talk about this in the book, is the alchemist sort of outputs and, and practice and secret recipes and conjuring things, uh, incantations. And if you think about an incantation, you know, it's written or recited formula for producing a particular effect, which is what the protocol is. The effect that we want to produce, though, is a certain kind of destabilization, as Tyson had said, a certain kind of generative awkwardness that allows one to not only meditate on the experience of education, but live through the experience of education in ways in which one has not previously um, undertaken. Is that what you mean by like studio drift or is that another concept that you engage with in your book? Yeah, so I think that when one studios or is engaged in a process of studioing, by writing protocols and enacting these protocols, you engage in what we call a, a very specific kind of educational movement, and that's drifting. And in the book, we try to make some dis clear distinctions between different forms of educational movement. So for instance, learning. We refer to learning as a kind of summiting 
a summiting action. So if you think about like summiting a mountain, for instance, there's a goal that you have and you strive to achieve those goals and you overcome all sorts of obstacles along the way. And then at the end, when you reach the summit of the mountain, you can assess what you have achieved. And so there's this sense of propelling oneself forward, achieving goals, and so on and so forth. And in, in a way, classrooms and the activities of learning within classrooms are meant to support and enhance this kind of movement. So you can, again, think of like assessments in schools. The whole point of an assessment is to see what you have summited or if you have summited. And if you haven't, how to help you, how to scaffold your summiting, what kind of tools do you need to reach the top of the mountain. So, so that's one particular kind of educational movement. And the, I guess the, the extreme opposite of that, which we describe in the book, would be the movement one experiences of being online, which uh, we refer to as browsing. And so browsing, in a sense, is the exact, exact opposite of learning. So when you browse, you don't have goals. There's no real sense of striving. There's no real way to assess what's been achieved, what hasn't been achieved. Indeed, it's 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 completely unclear if something has has been achieved at all. Uh, so think here of like watching, I don't know, hours of cat videos on TikTok. And when somebody asks you what you've been up to, what you've been doing for Alaska, you can't even remember, right? It's all just a it's just a, a blurry haze of cat videos. And you feel sort of like, wow, it's a time suck, right? Because there's no there, there's no propulsion in, in any one particular direction. And so, you know, we don't really say this in the book, but I think, you know, after writing the book, we probably should have been a little more clear about this and go so far as to say that this movement of browsing is, is perhaps even uh, non-educational when taken to its extreme. So we have these these two extremes of like learning is summiting and browsing and and internet exploration is browsing. But what we want to argue in the book is that studioing has its own unique educational movement. And we refer to this as drifting. And we take this language of drifting from Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari and some of their, their work. But this idea that drift is a special kind of educational movement that emerges out of the studio. And what's unique about it is that drifting, you don't have goals necessarily when you're when you're drifting. So it's kind of like browsing in this sense. It's much more open-ended than summiting, where you sort of know where you're going, right? It also doesn't really have a, a, a sort of a sense of willful striving. In fact, it's more akin to the experience of being taken up by something, being taken up by the forces of the drift that you can't really explain very clearly. And so whatever happens in this drift can't be assessed using normal rules that fall outside of the drift, right? One one can feel the push and pull of the drift, but one doesn't know exactly where one's going, but one still has some sense that something important is happening there. And so there's no real straight line from A to B as there is in summiting. And in fact, Deleuze and Guattari describe drifting as a kind of looping or nodding. And so we can think of drift as 
creating these kind of loose knots that circle and twist around a problem or an idea or a concept and sort of like, you know, through iterations and so on. So in the book, we actually highlight several different kinds of drift that one can induce through various protocol writing. And I, I can't remember the full, I think it's like a, there are glitchy drifts, there's iterative mm. drifts. Citational um, drift. Yes, thank you, citational drift. And I feel like I'm forgetting one. Mm -hmm. I think, oh, parodic, the sort of parodic drift. And so, yeah, so what we're trying to do is, is encourage a different kind of educational space and time when we talk about studioing. One that's defined less by either browsing or summiting and more by this peculiar, almost ritualistic, nodding um, uh, sense of, of drift. And I think that in some ways, even though we're talking about this as being sort of an exceptional kind of experience, this is something that's very common that we all we all do experience in different ways. I mean, if you think about studying as a general activity and getting buried in a book, and then that book takes you off to another book, which takes you off to another book, which takes you off to maybe go to sit down at the internet and look something up that allows you to listen to something. You get caught up in your media in certain ways. And, uh, and I think that part of the idea behind Drift as well is giving yourself over to other forces and recalibrating the will so that it's open to tangents, coincidences, paradoxes, exaggerations, mysteries, things that we typically try to filter out in our everyday life because they're not seen as productive, right? So what happens if we reconceive of these things and, and we don't care about productivity. We don't care about metricizing them. What are what is just happening as you know in their ontology as they're functioning? And then relatedly, what happens to the self when the self is put into that situation? And I think one of the things that happens that we talk about is there's a type of risk that's involved with it. Because as things are rendered inoperative, one of those things is your notion of self, your identity. And that is an uncomfortable place for people to be many times, because sometimes we barely have an, a sense of what our identity is. Um, yeah, I mean, just to say something, really jump in here quickly. When we, when we practice these with students, so I, I use protocoling in my pre-service teacher education courses, the overwhelming sense that students get is that they lose a sense of what it means to be profesh a professional art educator anymore. And this is disturbing to them and creates a kind of awkwardness because they don't have the norms that they would usually use to assess their behaviors um, in a classroom. And so, that, so there is this kind of risky dimension to this, especially when you're involved in teaching classes that have a professionalization component to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're intentionally useless. <laughs> Um, and this is what connects it to pataphysics uh, that we talk about in the book, which has a variety of definitions. One of them is the search for impossible solutions. Another uh, definition is looking at the state of exceptions rather than um, generalities. 
all of that is sort of counter to what we're told to do in everyday scenarios. <laughs> and so putting uh, people in the position of writing protocols and then enacting protocols is really to disrupt a lot of the, the handrails that we have in everyday life that get us through it. Uh, and to say that we're going to do away with those, or we're going to reimagine those, or we're going to say, what are, what are those things even in themselves? <laughs> do we understand what they are? The protocol is a way to investigate that. And drift is the movement that one has to inhabit in order to get to that place. Well, in one part of the book that was really intriguing to me was your kind of rethinking of the potential of a lecture in this post-digital space and what that looks like and talking about these, you know, kind of standard practices in the classroom. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the, poten the lecture's potential in, in post-digital spaces? Yeah, so there's something interesting to note. We're not the only scholars to point this out, is that um, lecturing, which seems to be the most banal, archaic form of, of higher education, right? Goes all the way back to the Middle Ages, the very birth of the university itself, and seems like so outdated and seems to be the straw man for every form of like progressive education out there. Nevertheless, it thrives in digital spaces like YouTube. I mean, the number of talking head videos on YouTube is amazing. So you have this weird juxtaposition of two things that don't seem like they would go together living simultaneously. Our sense though, is that sadly, these uh, sort of digital lecturers that you see on like Khan Academy and so on, they sort of seem to miss precisely what is most interesting and educationally relevant about lecturing. Lecturing for us, is not merely a professor reciting to an audience of students so that they can learn something. Again, this is very much the idea of, of, um, of learning as about inputs and outputs. And certainly there, there is lecturing that does this. But what we find most interesting, if you look at the actual history of lecture, lecturing as a practice, is that it also involves a movement of drift within it. There's, it's not just a kind of movement of summiting within lecturing. There's also a special kind of studious drift at work, maybe unconsciously behind the back of the intentions of the lecturer within the lecturing practice. And so for instance, like lectures allow ideas to drift from one person to another person. They allow drifting to happen from one media medium to another. So from the written word to oral, oral communication, they allow for a kind of uh, vertical drift of knowledge from one generation to another, but also kind of horizontal drift from the lecturer out into a wider audience, uh, making something public or held in common. And so our, our argument is that protocol writing which appears to be sort of the opposite of lecturing is not really the opposite of lecturing. Rather, when you protocol, you're taking up the drift already at work within lecturing as an educational practice, and you're sort of intensifying it and expanding it 
And so we're trying to sort of maybe save lecturing from itself, I guess you could say, or unleash a sort of deterritorializing driftiness at work in lecturing that is constrained by some of the sort of formal practices of, of lecturing that we've come to recognize in things like Khan Academy and so on and so forth. And, you know, no matter what the traditional sort of mode of lecturing looks like, it's all performance. There's a performative aspect to the lecture that doesn't really get talked about other than, you know, oh, that was a good lecturer or that was a bad lecture. And, you know, sometimes that means that, you know, the person was stumbling through their words. Sometimes it means that the ideas weren't expressed clearly, whatever. But performance has other features like aesthetics. It has features like gestures, but movements. It has all of these different things. And it also has the ability to have different modes. So, you know, the mode of the lecture as, um, you know, professor is outputting something that a passive audience is absorbing is one way in which you could think about a lecture. That's just only one type of performance. Uh, I think one of the things that we're advocating for are different ways in which one can perform a lecture. I guess simply stated. Yeah, and I mean, uh, so you know, at the baseline, we're. I think there's, you know, somebody might read the book and say, "Well, we're we're trying to destroy the lecture and the tradition of the lecture," but that's not the case. What we're actually suggesting is that there are different ways to embody the educational drift already at work within lecturing. And so lecturing can take on other, perhaps more awkward performative qualities, and that the lecture, therefore, is a space of educational experimentation. As we kind of come close to a close, I'm curious what the future of your research in this realm looks like. Like, what happens after the book? What's the next step? Or where, where does it go from here? And yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Well, I think Peter and I are always interested in further experimentation. And so this means always rendering inoperative or suspending or neutralizing our own assumption. And so we're always trying out new things. And one of the things that we've done most recently is use the idea of studioing, studious drift and protocoling and making them into professional development offerings for K-12 teachers in, in Dallas. And th this has been a really interesting e experiment because more often than not, these teachers see professional development as an opportunity to go and learn something to improve their teaching. And yet when we enact these protocols, we are precisely not interested in learning, nor are we necessarily interested in quote unquote improving teaching. We're interested in transforming teaching and one's perception of one's own teaching, but not in any necessarily uh, clearly uh, measurable way. So for instance, the, the, the traditional professional development course, somebody might expect, well, it was good because I learned something and I can directly apply it to my classrooms. I think for us, you know, quote unquote, success is really when somebody says, you know, I went to that thing and I didn't learn anything. You know, I didn't learn anything at all. And I'm not even sure how to apply it to my classroom. In fact, I'm not even sure what a classroom is anymore. <laughs> I'm not even sure if it's good to have a classroom anymore which seems counterintuitive, but really that's the, that's the point is to 
again, open up the possibility for thinking and experiencing education in new ways beyond just the sort of narrow definition that education has taken on in the era of learnification. Yeah, I think it's, you know, how do you create generative ruptures in traditional practices um, is one, one way uh, to think about what we're doing. We, I guess in the more uh, traditionally scholarly side of things, we are doing some additional writing. Um, we've written an article that looks at studioing in the face of fascism and how the uh, art classroom can be a anti-fascist space through the enactment of studioing. Uh, for example, we're working on looking at what we mean by the post-digital a, a little bit further and really trying to unpack that notion for ourselves and, and to really understand what we mean by, by that when we say it. And then we have a symposium that's coming up in October where we're inviting past participants who have enacted protocols to come and talk about the experience of protocoling. We have uh, respondent uh, panelists that are going to give critical interpretations of the book. Uh, and then we, we've got a, a few additional protocols up our sleeve uh, that we're going to try to enact during, during that moment. I think we're just interested in continuing and and, and really, as we involve more people in this, it gives us more ideas because we begin to see things that we didn't see before, which is the whole point, right, of, of creating these ruptures, creating these uh, moments of uh, abundance and plethora, uh, I guess, as um, uh, Bataille would say. And there was one more thing I was going to say, and it was really good, and now I can't recall it. But uh, I promise it was insightful. <laughs> well, we, we can always add that to the show notes. <laughs> I, I wanted to add that having read your book, I really want to rethink my teaching practice this fall. I work with pre-service art teachers too, and I am going to try my best to avoid using PowerPoints in my classroom this fall. That's like one of my goals. It's challenging because that's been become a part of our norm, you know, oh, let's prep for class, set up a PowerPoint. And so I appreciate and I'm still digesting <laughs> uh, your book. Ah, well, here, let me let me give you a suggestion. Oh, so great. In, uh, Love it. In our first uh, for our first symposium that we held in 2017, Education as Experimentation, one of the participants, Joris Vlieha, who's a good friend of ours um, at the University of KU Leuven in Belgium. He wrote a protocol and uh, and it was about PowerPoints and it was really great. And there's video of this on the Onsted website. So again, I encourage people to go and, and check this out because you could see how people dealt with this. But the, the basic protocol was teach a PowerPoint whose information you don't know anything about. And so this and this was great because it basically made us question how are PowerPoints shaping us as teachers? What do they make possible? And do you actually need to know anything about what you're teaching, you know? Um, or can the PowerPoint essentially be the teacher? And uh, so I would encourage you not simply not to use PowerPoint, but rather to tinker with and hack into the PowerPoint to try and understand what kind of educational logic it has and then transform it. 
into something else. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a challenge. I'll report back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and we're very interested in you know interdisciplinarity and you know ways in which what we're doing can be applied to various fields. You know, um, you're within the field of art history. I, you know, I think it would be very compelling to see how some of this might get enacted through uh, an art historical lens. You know, for example, what is a historical movement? What does that even mean, right? A historical period, what does that mean? The ways in which we have access to history through the internet, for example, and how you can sort of navigate historical items now, uh, or at least facsimile facsimiles or replicas of them. The ability for us to accumulate and digest images in this moment in history seems unparalleled in, in uh, regard to other moments in time. I like I would love to see protocols that try to tackle those those things and blow them up and uh, see see what occurs. Yeah, you know, uh, speaking of art history and you know what how protocoling and studious drift what that might look like in the art historical classroom, which by the way is dominated by the lecture slideshow format. I know this well, uh, having a, a master's degree in art history myself. So like, what would it mean to embrace studious drift in, a, in an art history classroom? And I think here of the work of the 19th century art historian, cultural theorist, Abi Varberg, who's not somebody that is well known today, but nevertheless is absolutely fascinating. And I think he, he is a figure, like one way of thinking about this is to go to the canon of art history itself and look for exemplars or paradigms of, of those who really embody studious drift. And I think Varberg does, and he constructed a library. This library has a kind of weird labyrinthian esoteric quality to it because all the books are just arranged in a kind of intricate, pattern that only Varberg understands. You know, none, there's no Dewey Decimal System here. There's no alphabetizing them. Rather, the books just sort of resonate with one another. And so he'd, he'd group together very unusual things that on the surface look like they have nothing at all in common. And so in a, in a weird way, he's sort of anticipating the internet. <laughs> you know, it's like Varberg's library. And he called this the um, law of good neighbors, you know, so the book should speak to one another. So you might go in there and find like a book of medieval symbolism next to a book on like contemporary Japanese architecture. And you'd immediately a, a sort of spark would, would go off in your mind, like, well, what's the connection here? How can I build a story? I think it would be fun to uh, do something similar with art history uh, and an art history classroom gives gives students like sets of books that are not at all arranged chronologically or in terms of of coherence you know schools that aren't a part of a similar time period or style or whatever and ask them to see what flashes up when they read the, these books together what what kind of exceptional strange pataphysical dimensions open up within art history itself through this kind of exercise I'll just end with a challenge, I guess you could say, and that is please go to Studio D on the on hosted on the Onstead website and do some of these protocols with your students. Try them out or do them by yourself and let us know what happens. You can email the results to us. We'd be very interested in seeing them and maybe we'll put them on our website. 
Or if you invent your own protocols or hack into and tinker with the existing protocols to create a variant, let us know. And we would be curious about that as well. And, and perhaps we could even post those on the website. That's really exciting. Um, thank you both Tyson and Peter for being here uh, with us today. I'll make sure that those links are in the show notes for listeners. And I also wanted to make sure that everyone knew that they can access the book digitally at the University of Minnesota Press website. That link will be provided as well. And thanks to everyone who is listening with us today and uh, joining us for another CAA Conversations podcast episode.